You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church. This is the Talk Archive. So today we are starting a new series and it's called Detox Discipleship and it's going to run right through until Lent. And the series really is about the idea that sacrifice is not something that Jesus did so that we don't have to. It's also something that we can do to draw closer to him. And so we're going to be looking at all sorts of different topics. We're going to be looking at Jesus without luxury, Jesus without distraction, Jesus without bitterness, all sorts of different things that we've got lined up. And my prayer for us really as we do this is a bit like I said at the start, it's, it's that we'd find a deeper depth of discipleship and worship, that we'd be willing to sacrifice some things and that as we do that, we would find ourselves knit closer and closer to Jesus and made more like him. And so the topic that I'd like to speak about today is Jesus and luxury. And particularly, I want to focus in on one question, which is how and why should we fast? We're going to be thinking about fasting. So how and why should we fast? So as we jump in, I've got a passage for us. It's from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, um, then you can grab that. And I should also say, while I think of it, we've put some little notepads in the backs of chairs recently. So if you ever want to take notes, those are there for you. And um, don't take it home with you. If you just rip off a page, then you can leave it behind for somebody else to use the next week. That'd be amazing. Uh, But they're there if you want to use them. There should be a pen or something as well. So Matthew 4 from verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So just before this passage, to give you the context, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist And as he's been baptized, he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit comes down on him in the form of a dove and he receives God's presence in that that way, in that moment. 
And at the same time, the father also speaks some words of affirmation over him. He says of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And then that encounter ends and with no gap at all, Jesus heads off out into the wilderness to have this encounter that we've just read about. So there's no sort of post-baptism do at a local pub or something. Granny's not come to celebrate with everybody and then they have to kind of hang around for a few days before she can get her train back and then Jesus heads off into the wilderness. No, it's literally like he's baptised and then straight away he's sent out into the wilderness. And the passage introduces it like this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I think that raises immediately two uncomfortable truths. First off, there's a devil, right? That's an uncomfortable truth that's raised by this passage. It turns out that there's a devil. And um, that's uncomfortable, I think, for two reasons. Either because it's scary or because it seems a little bit far-fetched. You know, some people think, well, it's hard enough to believe in a God, and now you're telling me I have to believe in a devil. Uh, Is this just, I don't know, it feels a bit far-fetched. And normally that's because the idea that we've got in our head of what the devil would be like is probably more from Simpsons or something like that than it is from the Bible. We've already sort of imagined that there's a a pitchfork involved and Man United and some horns and all sorts of things like that. Uh, But it's not going to quite work out a little bit like that if we're reading the Bible. I think there are two twin dangers when it comes to thinking about the devil. The first danger would be just naive disbelief. Just say, "Mm, nah, it's all a bit outdated. I'm just not going to go for that. The second danger would be an unhealthy obsession with demons and the devil. And we could get carried away kind of seeing demonic work around every corner and influencing every decision and action that anybody makes. Uh, We don't preach very much about the devil here, basically because I don't think he really deserves it. He's not worth it, not important enough to be preached about when we could be preaching about Jesus. In um, C.S. Lewis's book I just finished called The Great Divorce, there's this moment near the end and they're in heaven effectively and, um, and they, they realise that hell is this tiny crack in between two blades of grass. And it turns out that the, the reason that people in heaven aren't going to rescue people from hell is because they can't fit, they're too big, because there's too much life in them. And I think that gives a really amazing picture, I guess, of the difference in authority between the spiritual forces of good and those of evil. But it is important to remember that there is a devil, there is spiritual evil, just in the same way that there's spiritual good. That kind of makes sense if you think about it. In my experience, uh, people who totally reject the devil's influence are normally most influenced by him. And so we want to be careful about that. But there's a second uncomfortable truth as well that we hit in this verse, which is that it's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, The passage said, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And it's not that he's just led into the wilderness to do something and then while he's there he happens to be tempted by the devil. 
coincidentally doing some other thing that God actually wanted him to do. No, it says um, he was led in the, into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit comes on Jesus at his baptism. He receives the words of affirmation by the Father, and then immediately God sends him on purpose into a period of battle and temptation. It's not much of an advert for Easter Sunday, is it? But there's a question, I guess, I want to ask us, which is, is it possible that in this period of Lent or or any other period in our lives, that God might want to purposefully lead some of us into a wilderness place, stripping aside some of the things that we've got used to, that we rely on, in order that we might do battle and represent him in fighting for good over evil. Is that possible? I think it probably is possible, actually. And so then we might want to think about how we could do that like Jesus, so we're not caught unawares. And I notice that in this encounter, Jesus chooses one weapon to go into battle, and the thing that he chooses is fasting. And so I want to spend the rest of my time thinking a little bit about what is fasting, uh, and why would we do it, and what difference does it make? Um, and uh, just as a little sort of aside, really, um, I'm going to mostly focus on giving up food uh, because that's sort of just the simple definition of what fasting is. But I realize that for some people, it's not possible to give up food for any particular period of time. You might have a particular health condition that makes that impossible or be breastfeeding or pregnant or have an eating disorder or something like that. And so if that's the case, then what I suggest is that you think about fasting in different ways. In the Bible, uh, for instance, Daniel, he fasts by giving up um, everything except vegetables and water for three years. It's quite a hardcore fast. Um, So, I mean, you can think about that. Or or sort of, you know, whatever. Or some people fast comfort or sleep or or whatever it is. There are other ways that we can give stuff up. I'm going to focus on food, but the principle is the same, basically. When we choose to sacrifice out of worship, then something happens. And the first thing that happens is it helps us resist temptation, I think. That's the first thing. Fasting helps us resist temptation. Now, it's really important, I think, to get the order of this passage right, which is why I've been banging on about Jesus being sent away immediately. And the order goes like this. Jesus is baptized. Spirit comes on him. Sends him into the wilderness. Fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he's tempted by the devil. Right? They're not, they don't happen at the same time. It's at the end of his period of fasting that Jesus is tempted. And I think that's interesting, because there's two reasons why that might be the case. The first is that the devil seems to think that Jesus is going to be most easily tempted after fasting. So he waits presumably could have come earlier. Instead, he waits till the end of the period of fasting to arrive with the temptation. But the other possible reason is that Jesus thinks he's going to be most ready to resist temptation after fasting. But they might have the opposite motives at work here. It might be that the the devil is waiting for the opportune moment, but Jesus is preparing himself for the opportune moment. And so the question is, who's going to be right? And we see the way it works out in the passage, in the first encounter. 
Uh, so the passage says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Right? Well, no kidding. Okay? It's like the most, that's probably the most British statement in the Bible. Um, and so the devil sees this and thinks, ha, it's my moment. Got my opportunity. And um, he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So the first sort of option is pretty obvious. Food. Seen a guy, looks hungry, I'll go with food. That makes sense. Okay, but it doesn't actually work. It doesn't work. And when you think about it, it's not that surprising it doesn't work. Because Jesus is hungry, but he's also the person who has just proven himself willing and able to go 40 days without food. I mean, if anybody is able to resist temptation of food, maybe it's the guy who's just been able to go without food for 40 days and 40 nights. He seems able to do it. And so unsurprisingly then, Jesus is fine. He doesn't give in to this temptation. And the point is, Jesus is the last person you're going to be able to tempt with food. He's more than able to go without it. But it cuts both ways that. Because for us, if we've never been willing to give anything up, then maybe we would be tempted by almost anything because we've never had that practice of learning to be disciple people who can resist temptation. In my experience, fasting, far from making me more tempted, gives me an ability to resist temptation. The other day, I fasted for two days, and I, but I'd only planned to fast for one. It was like Tuesday evening through to Thursday evening. Um, but yeah, I thought I'd just fast for the one day. And what happened was, on the Wednesday, I was just like the worst faster ever. It was terrible. Um, you know, you, well, you're not supposed to tell people about it for starters. So that one's gone. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, I was just very distracted. You sp maybe you're supposed to pray when you would have been eating. I didn't do any of that. I decided I'd rather just think about food. And um, I, just, I was just very distracted, very hungry, not feeling great, just miserable. And uh, all night through to Thursday morning, I kept on waking up in the night and then planning what I'd have for breakfast. <laughs> so I think like, oh, I could, I could go to McDonald's. Maybe if I get up early, I could go to McDonald's and get a like McMuffin thing. And I decided 6 a.m. is sort of the earliest time you can legitimately have breakfast and count it as not breaking the fast. So I was waiting for 6 a.m. It was like 3 a.m. No, I'll have to just have another think and then go back to sleep. 3.30, no, uh, etc. And it just went like that. Uh, but then, at 6 a.m., I felt like something changed, actually. It shifted. For one thing, I actually felt quite refreshed, like weirdly refreshed. Uh, but for the, the other thing was, I realized that now there was an opportunity, if I wanted it, to extend the period of fasting. But that would just be like purely out of choice and as like a gift to God it would just be like offered to him I suppose there's no obligation I hadn't decided to do this in advance and would feel like I'm letting someone down if I didn't do it or anything like that it's just a free thing I could do if I wanted to and as I did it, it, that was the moment where I discovered kind of freedom I guess in it it was such a wonderful day and what I found is far from being obsessed by food 
kind of tempted at everything. Actually, I was free from temptation, not just for food, but for other things. I used to, while I was doing my degree, fast every Friday when I was writing my essays. And you think, that'd be a terrible idea. You'd be so distracted. But it's not the case. I found, actually, I was free from some of those temptations. And I don't really know how that works, but I know that it does. And so I want to encourage you that fasting can set you free from temptation. 1 Peter 4 says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for, hu- for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. If there's something that you think, I want to be done with that temptation, then I want to recommend fasting. So if you want to quit smoking, then try fasting. If you want to quit watching pornography, then try fasting. If you want to quit laziness or excess, try fasting. Not because it's sort of a magic bullet, but because it will help you build an attitude and a practice and a habit of overcoming temptation. That's the first thing. A second recommendation for fasting is that I think it supercharges prayer. So it helps us overcome temptation. I think it supercharges prayer. Um, I really like going for prayer walks, like as a way to pray. Love being out and about walking. It's partly because I get really distracted if I'm just sort of sat somewhere trying to pray. Uh, But it's also because I get really inspired by the different things. I find that I can pray for stuff that I wouldn't have thought of if I was in my room at home. Then we walk past it and I think, oh, wow, brilliant. I can pray for that. And so I love it. And so when uh, me and Nick first came to Blackpool, we started a pattern of prayer walking every single week. We prayed with some of you folks and others from the church every week around Blackpool. And we started in sort of September, October time, which meant that the prayer walk sort of started as like an autumn stroll of an evening. It was nice. It was, it was classy. And you just kind of wander out, maybe put on a jacket, but that's, that's plenty, and uh, pray for some stuff. But then obviously as the weeks go past, uh, that's, uh, the prayer walks change in nature <laughs> uh, because suddenly it's like we're in the middle of horrend- like a Blackpool blizzard trying to pray. And uh, coincidentally, I'm sure, the attendance at the prayer walks plummeted as well. And so I came up with a little phrase to inspire myself and anyone else who would fall for it as to why we should be out praying. And uh, the phrase was, the stronger the rain, the stronger the prayer, right? That was the phrase. (laughs) And I fell for it for a while. Um, But I think actually there's something in it. There's something in it. Because if you choose to go outside into the pouring rain to spend time in prayer, asking God to make a difference in the town, there's a level of commitment and conviction and seriousness that you just can't express in a living room. Like you just can't express that same sense of a deep longing and desire to see something changed while holding on to all of the comfort and not being willing to get rid of any of it. Similarly, if you book yourself a slot in our prayer room at a really inconvenient time and we've forgotten to turn the heater on because we never turn it on and nobody knows that you were coming and it's, it's kind of awkward because you'd rather be doing something else. There's a level of commitment and conviction that you communicate to God that you just can't communicate any other way. And similarly, when we decide to give up 
food for a while or give up some other thing that we rely on. We communicate to God a level of seriousness and conviction that we can't communicate elsewhere. And so it supercharges our prayers in my experience. In the passage, the devil comes to Jesus with temptation number two. And that is, it's sort of supernatural, I don't know, influence, I guess, is what's on offer. He takes Jesus up to the top of this temple. And they're overlooking crowds of people, presumably, gathering around. And the devil says to Jesus, why don't you just throw yourself off? Because if you throw yourself off, God will, will hold you up. The angels will come and, and hold you up and rescue you. And everyone will say, wow, isn't Jesus amazing? Look at, look at how awesome he is. He can do anything. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. Because out of the period of fasting, he's going to come with, with plenty of supernatural power. His prayers are going to be supercharged by his willingness to sacrifice. And so even in that same passage, Matthew chapter 4, we see all sorts of incredible things that Jesus can do. Far, way better than throwing yourself off a temple. I mean, he, it says he heals every disease and sickness. He heals people suffering severe pain. He heals the demon-possessed, those having seizures, people who are paralyzed. In effect, Jesus goes into the fast with God's identity. He comes out with God's power as well. There's something about that willingness of Jesus to sacrifice that, that makes him, uh, I guess, more and more a receptacle of God's power. We see that most, of course, on the cross and his resurrection. I think a, a useful side effect of fasting is that it makes us more compassionate for people who don't have what we're giving up. It's a wonderful thing about fasting. But that works really well because when we're more compassionate, it stirs our hearts to pray. And when we fast, our prayers are supercharged, in my experience at least. Okay, two down. And one to go. The last thing that I notice is that fasting unites us with Jesus. I've got this sort of uh, deep desire, really, in this series that I've mentioned, which is that I want to see every single one of us more and more united with Jesus, closer and closer to him, fashioned more and more in his likeness. And so in a second, yeah, brilliant, thanks, John. We're going to worship and ask Jesus to fill us with his spirit. But I think in fasting, there's a particular opportunity to, to draw close to him in, in, in an, un, I guess, in a way that can't be done elsewhere. Um, I've been thinking it a little, of it a little bit like joinery. Um, when, you have, when you want to join two pieces of wood together, there's a few different ways you can do that. Um, one way is that you can just kind of stick them end to end. Just get a bit of glue and just stick them end to end. I brought some examples, right? You like this? Did a bit of blue Peter at home. Right. So this is one way you can do it. And I've colored one in so you can see it a bit better. You just get two bits of wood and you just stick them end to end with some glue. But the problem with this is it's really weak. So I've had to put some tape on this. I don't even know if it'll hold if I take the tape off. Oh, a little bit. But it's really weak. It doesn't last if you just stick end to end. 
And so what you're supposed to do is, is something a bit more like this. What you do is you, is you get the wood and you, and you cut away. You cut sections from the wood to expose the grain. And then you put the glue on the grain and, and join it to the other one where it's been cut away as well. And when you do that, you get really, really strong joints. Like really strong, like this will not break. I mean, if you get a good joint, it can be stronger than even the wood sort of surrounding it. You'll break the wood before you break the joint. And that's a, that's a picture for us of what happens when we fast. Jesus was willing to be cut away for us. He was willing to have the grain exposed for us. He did that consistently through his ministry in all sorts of different ways. He did that in this period of fasting. He did that when he chose again and again to be compassionate for people. He did it most profoundly on the cross when he decided to be physically cut away for every single one of us. And so then the question is, will we be willing to be cut away? Will, will, will we allow God to cut anything out of our lives, to expose some of the grain that we might be united to Jesus in a strong way? I mean, we can do the surface level if we want. You can just whack a bit of glue on and, and put them together. But, but when the trials come, when pressures come, it won't last. But if we're willing to sacrifice something, maybe through this period of Lent, to take seriously the call to grow as disciples of Jesus, putting aside some of the things that would hold us back, then we'll be united in a way that will last. There's all sorts of reasons that you might want to fast. You might want to fast to overcome temptation. Uh, you, you might want to fast uh, because it helps you uh, remember the poor. You might want to fast because it's, it's good for your health. Um, it develops self-control. It develops self-awareness. There's all sorts of reasons you might want to fast, but there is a, a best reason. And the best reason is that it might unite you with Jesus. And so may you do that through this period of Lent and beyond. And as you do it, may you be filled and renewed by his Holy Spirit, united with him and made more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.